Welcome into another edition of Inside Carolina's Next Level, where Greg Barnes and myself try to dig a little deeper into things related to Carolina athletes, related to UNC, and related to Chapel Hill. And our guest today is a pillar of Chapel Hill in this day and age, Coach Anson Dorrance. Coach, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. It is a, an honor to have you on the show. And like we were talking off air briefly, um, 22 national championships, a ton of winning. But I sort of wanted to look into, um, start with your background, but, but start with what made the person you are today. And I want to go all the way back to the beginning, Coach. Uh, you moved around overseas growing up. What made the person that wanted to be at North Carolina, that wanted to take over a North Carolina soccer program, men's and women's at the time, um, what shaped that early life that put you in that position? Well, first of all, uh, excellent question. Uh, but to wanted to be, it was not a part of the story, as you will hear. Uh, and you're right, my background uh, was uh, interesting. I was born in Bombay, India to... Uh, um, an oil businessman. I had a sister born there as well. We moved to Calcutta across the uh, subcontinent. Uh, I had another brother uh, born there. And then we moved to Nairobi, Kenya. Another brother was born there. Uh, then we moved to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, where I met the woman I'm married to. Uh, and then from there, we had a, a brief stint in uh, Oakland, California. And then we were off to Singapore, Malaysia, uh, where uh, a sister was born. Uh, and then uh, we came back to the United States. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, uh, went to White Plains, New York, uh, where, you know, uh, I went to Archbishop Stepanak. And that should ring a bell for you guys that follow basketball, because uh, our extraordinary point guard is also a graduate of Archbishop Stepanak. In fact, I can still sing the fight song, I mean, which is amazing. I mean, gosh, there's so many things I've forgotten in my 72 years, but um, I can still, you know, sing to you the Archbishop Stepanak fight song, which is amazing. I'm so impressed. I still remember that. Uh, from uh, uh, White Plains, uh, we uh, moved to Brussels, Belgium. Uh, while my family was living in Brussels, they sent me to a Swiss boarding school in Fribourg. They came back to the United States. They moved to uh, Greenwich, Connecticut while I was finishing my high school degree in uh, Freeboard. Uh, and then uh, I, of course, graduated high school and came to college in the U.S. And it's interesting, even though every three years we would move, we would spend uh, three to six months on a tobacco farm in Lewisburg, North Carolina. So it didn't matter how old I was. If someone would say, uh, uh, where are you from? I would say Lewisburg, North Carolina. So wherever I was living, uh, you know, Lewisburg, North Carolina was my home. And uh, this is also really bizarre that I will share with you. Um, both of my parents were born in mainland China. My father's side of the family uh, was uh, uh, working for Standard Oil of New Jersey. This is before the uh, monopoly was broken up into Exxon and Mobil. And my mother's side of the family was the North Carolina side of the family. And that grandparent was working for American tobacco. So these were two very powerful American families uh, in China. And of course, as anyone knows that has lived overseas, the American community is a very tight one. So these are families that all knew each other. Both sets of grandparents got divorced. And my mother's father married my father's mother. It'll take you a while to figure that out. Uh, it took me like, you know, 20 years to figure that out because they got this tobacco farm in Lewisburg, North Carolina. And whenever I was visiting Lewisburg on home leave, this was so weird to me that we were visiting basically both sets of grandparents. And so it took me a while to figure that thing out. Uh, but basically, uh, that was my that was my background. But I was never really interested in uh, uh, coaching. 
Um, it was, uh, my dad uh, was uh, trying to start his own oil company. And um, he, the family joke at the time, he wanted me to be his corporate attorney. And so uh, the ambition put into my head by my father, and by the way, I love my father. I was a dutiful son, so I went to law school for my dad uh, because, you know, his dream was, again, for me to step into the family business. And the joke back then was, at least as the corporate attorney, uh, I wouldn't have a tendency to steal from my own estate. So that was family humor back in the day. And so uh, I went to law school because uh, my dad wanted me to. Uh, I wasn't a particularly good student. Um, and... <laughs> And I'm, I'm always willing to admit that, although I hate admitting that in front of my kids when the standard for every player on my team is to clear a 3-0. I did not clear a 3-0 coming out of the University of North Carolina, I, I have to admit. Uh, all I was interested in at UNC was basically playing intramural sports and playing on the soccer team, obviously, and, and I was playing on the rugby club. So for me, my education as an undergraduate at UNC, uh, I love books. And so what I would do is I would take courses where I would have a book list to read. And that was a part of my uh, boarding school education. Back in those days, uh, we had study halls like four times a day. And the rule in the study hall is you had to be sitting at your desk erect, which meant you couldn't have your head on the desk, you know, basically with the book as a pillow. No, you actually had to be awake. And so what all of us developed in this uh, boys boarding school is all of us became voracious readers because after we had finished our homework, and the four study halls that we had, we would finish our homework after about two and a half study halls. And so for the remaining study hall and a half, we would be reading and reading and reading. And so my education growing up was reading books. And then uh, when I came to UNC, uh, um, I took all the courses that you had to take to get your gen ed, uh, I guess, degree, your first two years. And so, of course, they're having me take the intro course for all these different uh, uh, curricula and departments. And I had this wonderful philosophy professor by the name of Zafron. And this is back in the days when not only was smoking popular, this is back in the days when the professors smoked in class. <laughs> Holy cow. So anyway, uh, this guy would light up a cigarette at the beginning of class. And he was, he was a wonderful model of, you know, uh, uh, philosophical discourse. He was very articulate. And the stuff he talked about, the ideas he talked about, I thought were fascinating. And he would, you know, unconsciously be lighting another cigarette while the other one was going out. <laughs> on this particular day, and this guy had huge, uh, bushy head of hair and bushy eyebrows, and he lit the filter end of his cigarette. It caught fire, and his eyebrow caught on fire. It was so bushy. <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, holy crap. I mean, this guy lit himself on fire while he's talking about these wonderful ideas. So I just said, you know what? I'm going to major in philosophy. I mean... It can't get any better than that. You know, I just can't have, you know, uh, another course that I would be interested in where you would light yourself on fire and you would continue to lecture. I was thinking, I am sold. I am going to become a philosophy major. So I love ideas. <clears throat> I majored in philosophy. And then because I transferred into UNC, I had an extra year of eligibility. Because back in those days, when you transferred, you couldn't play immediately. It was a rule. The other team couldn't give you permission to play immediately. So bang. I was ineligible uh, uh, that first year I, I, I transferred in. <clears throat> so I wanted to play out my eligibility because I loved uh, my soccer coach, Dr. Marvin Allen. I loved the soccer program. I was going into my fifth year, and all of a sudden, I'm about to graduate. And uh, my uh, guidance counselor said, by the way, Anson, you've majored in English. I'm thinking, what? I had no intention to major in English. But what had happened, because I just like bookless, so, you know, I wanted to read all Faulkner. Oh, there was a course on campus, you know, where I could read Faulkner. So I took that course. And then, yeah, I liked, uh, you know, the Renaissance poets. So there was a course on campus that had that. I, you know, I took that course. I love Shakespeare. So I was reading Shakespeare plays. And then all of a sudden I ended up graduating with a double major in English and philosophy. And the only reason I ended up majoring in English is because I just loved to read. It was my high school you know, boarding school, sitting at a desk where I had to be sitting upright. Uh, and so uh, I ended up majoring in English and philosophy. Uh, and then, of course, I'm off to law school, but not immediately. I got married the summer I graduated. Um, and of course, I have an English and philosophy degree. So I'm going to slowly starve to death somewhere. So <laughs> where am I going to starve to death? I'm going to starve to death in Chapel Hill by God. I'm going to starve to death, you know, right here. I loved it. 
I loved everything about my university. I loved everything about Chapel Hill itself. And then I fortunately, I found a woman that was employable. Uh, she was a professional ballet dancer. We got married the summer I graduated, moved down here, and she was employed immediately. And actually, uh, I'm so competitive. It took me 15 years to finally catch her income because we would go into the, a tax accountant. Uh, and uh, I was just apoplectic that she kept out, you know, out earning me every year. And so finally, in the 15th year, uh, you know, I finally uh, cleared that uh, hurdle and, you know, felt like I was finally supporting my family. Uh, so when I uh, was admitted to law school, um, I basically wanted to contribute to the family income. So Marvin Allen, my mentor and coach at UNC, was a part-time men's soccer coach, but he was actually a physical education instructor on campus. So he went in, I assume, and chatted with uh, Bill Kobe, the athletic director, and probably said, you know, Bill, uh, I think you should consider hiring Anson uh, to replace me when I retire. Uh, and uh, either, you know, Bill Kobe's budget was so tight, and that's probably the case, you know, he couldn't go on a national search and find an elite coach to coach his uh, soccer team here at UNC. And he needed to hire someone that was willing to work part time. And since I was off to law school, he called me up one day and said, Anson, I'd love to uh, chat with you about uh, uh, some things. And I, I assumed he was going to bring me in and ask me who I would recommend to replace Dr. Marvin Allen since he was retiring. And then I come into his office and he offers me the job. I almost dropped dead on the spot. I couldn't believe it. So I was hired to coach guys I had played with. That's how young I was. Um, and so, bang, I'm now coaching the men's soccer team part-time while I'm going to law school. Of course, law school is a bit of a grind. So uh, I took one course shy each semester to get the law degree. So usually you finish your law degree in three years. It was taking me into my fourth year to finish the degree. I had six courses shy of my law degree. And all of a sudden that spring, there's a women's club on campus that had petitioned for varsity status. And uh, Mr. Bill Kobe said, Anson, uh, uh, you mind coming out and helping me vet this club? And obviously this is post Title IX, 1972. Uh, Richard Nixon decided to push uh, Title IX through, uh, which meant I think every athletic director in the country was trying to figure out a way to either add women's sports or add big women's sports so they could sort of check all the boxes for Title IX. So he drags me out there to watch this women's club play. And at the end of the game, he says, well, Anson, what do you think? I said, honestly, uh, uh, Mr. Kobe, uh, that's an excellent team. They're well coached. Um, and I, now I'm shilling for the, the club coach, the, the coach that had put the team together. A lot of good athletes out there. Um, you know, I think, yeah, we should make this uh, a UNC varsity. I thought they had passed uh, the smell test. They had done the work. Yep, let's, let's make them a varsity. And obviously I'm promoting the game. And then all, all of a sudden, while I'm standing there in the field with him, he says, well, Anson, if you will coach both teams, I will make your part-time position full-time. And then, of course, the rest was history. So now I'm trying to finish my uh, law degree. And uh, by this time, I had transferred into UNC. Um, <clears throat> I wasn't a good enough student to get into UNC out of uh, college. Um, but I was attending North Carolina Central University in Durham. Um, and now I had transferred into UNC. I'm trying to uh, finish my law degree. I'm trying to coach two teams. I'm getting four to six hours sleep at night. And uh, I am just frazzled. I don't know about you two guys, but I need sleep. <laughs> I need sleep to function. Uh, and I think that's normal. And I come home one day and I'm just feeling so sorry for my wife because I know what her vision of our future was that we were going to retire on a yacht in the Mediterranean. And all of a sudden I come home and say, honey, um, I am so sorry, but uh, I've decided to drop out of law school. And then she wrapped her arms around me and she said, Anson, please don't worry. You love this. You absolutely love this. You know, uh, don't worry about it. You know, the income's you know not going to be anywhere, but we're going to be happy. And all of a sudden I got this wonderful endorsement from Melissa, my wife. And I was so relieved because I didn't want her to be disappointed. And then, of course, the rest is history. Uh, I coached the men for the first three years while I was in law school. In the fourth year, I was given the women's team. I coached men and women for 10 years. And then in 1989, uh, Mr. John Swafford uh, had the vision to decide that, you know, yeah, let's split the program. You know, I'm killing one of my coaches. Uh, and uh, 
then all of a sudden my men's assistant coach, a wonderful man by the name of Elmar Bolovich, uh, he and I, in a small conspiracy, uh, I convinced them that if he wants a head uh, coaching job here, I will support him in it. But what we have to do is to cut the budget in half for both programs. Uh, in other words, I had one massive budget for the men and women. Cut it in half. You get half the budget. I get half the budget. But I think for us to push this tr through, you've got to live as a head coach on an assistant coach's salary. He had no issue with it. And so we split the program. He took the men. I took the women. Uh, then from 89 forward, I just coached the women. So that's sort of the chronology. I never had the ambition to coach, uh, ever. Um, it was just thrown in my lap. And for me, initially, it was just income. Uh, not that I you know, hated the game. No, I loved the game. And I was one of these guys that was organizing, uh, you know, youth teams all over North Carolina, senior teams. I had appealed to uh, U.S. soccer, whose offices at the time were in New York, to establish the, uh, uh, you know, the North Carolina uh, Youth Soccer Association, which affiliated itself with U.S. soccer and eventually, of course, FIFA, because U.S. soccer was the conduit for FIFA, the world governing body. I did the same thing for the uh, the older uh, uh, teams and leagues in the league. So I was already sort of a soccer politician in the state of North Carolina. I coached and played on the uh, senior club team I played on. While I was an undergraduate at UNC, uh, I had a wonderful Pied Piper of soccer, a wonderful uh, man by the name of Kip Ward that was a teammate who started the Rainbow Soccer Program in Chapel Hill. I was one of his lieutenants, and it was a great training ground. So as one of his lieutenants, I coached uh, basically this entire club. We had an elementary school team, a middle school team, a high school team, and then a senior team that I not only coached, but I also played on it. So my coaching resume before I ascended to the top of Division One was rainbow soccer. I enjoy teasing my colleagues to death about this ascension from coaching, you know, recreational level boys and girls to the top of Division One. And of course, I'm just teasing all of them because they had to go through this laborious process of killing themselves at all these different levels to ascend to their Division One jobs. And just because my coach loved me, I go from nowhere to the top of the pinnacle. Um, and I just enjoyed teasing my colleagues to no end about that. But honestly, my coaching roots are basically experimenting at a youth level. You know, you try this, this doesn't work. You change it. You try something else. You try that, that doesn't work. And of course, I'm coaching all age groups. And so I'm getting insights into all kinds of things in terms of player development. And honestly, that was an extraordinary education for me. Anson, that's a, a fascinating background for sure. Um, and North Carolina's fans, as well as the Chapel Hill community, has been very fortunate over the decades to have some very impactful figures run programs. And of course, everybody uh, knows Dean Smith's impact with segregation and getting Charlie Scott on the team and the value there. Uh, I don't know that you get enough credit for your impact in kind of breaking the cultural norms with regard to kind of gender as it pertains to sports. Um, I am fascinated to know what, what was it that allowed you um, to connect and to build up young women as quickly as you did? Um, because I know in, in reading just some stuff that, that Mia Hams talked about you know, years ago, as well as a lot of your other um, players, you really kind of pushed, especially the, the early groups, you really pushed them like they had never been pushed before. And so what kind of led to that? Did the, did the ability to coach the men's team first and then bring the women on and kind of realize that, hey, there's some differences here that I need to, I need to negate? Was that a, a part of your early success? Well, Greg, first of all, another excellent question. And uh, what I'm about to share is not politically correct. So if uh, you're sponsored by a bunch of people that are politically correct, uh, maybe you should you know, edit this part of my conversation with you. <laughs> but let me share this because this is genuine. Uh, back in the early 70s, <clears throat> when I was a student at UNC, uh, radical feminism were telling us that uh, men and women are exactly the same. And I was thinking to myself, well, thank God, because I know absolutely nothing about women. So thank God that men and women are exactly the same. And so my intention when I was hired to coach the women, three years into coaching the men, I was very comfortable coaching the men. I was the captain of the men's team. I had no issue, you know, barking at my teammates if they were underperforming. I was very comfortable in the men's environment. 
Um, all of a sudden, I'm given this women's team, and nothing in my background prepared me for coaching women. <clears throat> One of the things I joke about when I speak is I went to a boys' boarding school for my high school education. The closest I came to a woman in those days, I had the leading female role in the school play my senior year. <laughs> so when I'm speaking, I'm sort of apologizing to everyone listening to me to, that assume that I'm an expert on coaching women, and I was not. I was basically a, a male soccer player that was comfortable leading his team as a captain. And then an incredible man decided I could replace him uh, as the men's soccer coach. And I wasn't prepared at all when uh, Mr. Kobe extended the opportunity for me to coach uh, the women. But armed with, you know, radical feminism, men and women are the same. I couldn't wait to jump in. So I would design one training session and the men would run it and uh, the men would go from two to four women, four to six. My sweet wife would bring me a <clears throat> drink during the warm-up for the women's team because of course i'm dehydrated from you know uh, screaming at the men for an hour and a half to two hours uh and now i'm coaching the women and of course bill paladino my long-term assistant and i we i you know talk about organization i have no organizational uh, bones in my body at all so all of a sudden before the women's practice bill paladino who was a wonderful assistant for me he and i are literally planning the women's practice during the warm-up, and all I know coming in is whether the practice is going to be medium, light, or heavy. You know what I'm saying? So, and we're planning this together, and then basically we're running the session. I learned very early <clears throat> men and women are not the same. And obviously, I understand, you know, um, radical feminism that basically don't want women to be treated unequally. <clears throat> and so they latch onto a political agenda to make sure that agenda is served. Because I think as, for, as soon as you start to admit we're different, then what seeps into the conversation or perhaps reality is that we're unequal. I have never believed that men and women are unequal, but holy cow, was I making a mess of things early. And then the women uh, basically taught me how to lead them. Uh, and there's this great documentary out <clears throat> on uh, uh, something about our dynasty that uh, came out uh, uh, recently that's actually on ACCN on a regular basis. And they interviewed all these kids from the early era. And one of my favorite parts of the interview was uh, Susan Ellis. And she was one of my early, you know, <laughs> I guess, uh, kids I was experimenting with while I'm trying to learn how to coach women. And uh, she's saying uh, how, you know, initially I was calling all the men by their last names. So, uh, heck, I'm going to call all the women by their last names. And Susan says, well, she didn't like that. And none of the other women liked that either. And so she said, well, you know, I don't want to be called Alice. I want to be called Susan. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. And so now I'm all of a sudden, you know, these women are changing the way they wanted to be treated. Uh, and then slowly but surely, I learned that, uh, you know, in terms of leading, the different genders were completely different. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, and obviously, this is incredibly simple. So for any sociologist out there, or psychologist or anthropologist, I apologize for what I'm about to say. Uh, please don't call me. Call Tommy and Greg for putting this on the air. Um, I don't want to get your calls abusing me. But basically, if a big guy walks into the room and wants to sit in the chair I'm sitting in, I get up and move. We are simple creatures, we men. Uh, I don't want to die. So when the big guy says, hey, Anson, I want to sit there. Greg, yeah, yeah, sure, sit down. And I can care less. I want to stay alive. So I get up and move. Women don't respond to that sort of hierarchy. Uh, they will only respond to people they trust. So the critical element when you're leading women is to win their trust. You don't win their trust, you know, by barking at them. Uh, you win their trust by relating to them, by getting to know them, by caring about them. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, there was a completely different, uh, I guess, transition into me uh, leading my women's team, all engineered by these extraordinary women I had the opportunity to coach. And so for me, the evolution was basically trial and error. And I don't pretend for a second that <clears throat> I was any good at it. Uh, and I'm still trying to get better uh, because I'm not, I guess, the perfect uh, uh, women's coach. Uh, and the perfect women's coach, actually, for me back in the day was Bill Palladino because <clears throat> he was extraordinarily warm and, you know, naturally caring. I am a shark with blood in the water. <clears throat> uh, I mean, I know the definition of warm, but I can't get there. I mean, I am about, you know, going out there and, you know, taking scalps. And, you know, for me, I, I just have a different personality. 
Um, and all I can do is, you know, publicly share, you know, thank goodness there was a woman that embraced me and I'm still married to her. Uh, but, you know, warmth and I uh, are not, you know, uh, in the same universe. So thank goodness for the people that have surrounded me and, you know, uh, taken that part of, you know, my uh, leadership responsibility. Uh, but for me, uh, coaching the women has been an evolution and it's ongoing and I'm still trying to get better. In fact, uh, I've jumped into uh, co-teaching a course with two brilliant professors at UNC called The Art and Science of Expertise. And I'm still trying to learn uh, how to be a more effective uh, coach for my women. And uh, one of the uh, visionary, the visionary for the course is Arianne Waite, who uh, has a wonderful uh, image of where she wants to take these kinds of courses. And uh, we have a learning specialist named Jeff Green in the course that uh, between Arianne and Jeff, when they lecture, I'm writing notes down the whole time, so I'm still trying to become more and more effective. But I don't want to pretend for a second this was uh, an easy lift for me. It was not. And uh, because I am so competitive and because the nice thing about the coaching profession is if you screw up, it's a matter of public record because someone just handed you your head in the last game. I am very quick to change something that doesn't work. And so my evolution was basically trial and error. And, um, and fortunately, um, I celebrate every year when I'm rehired. Uh, and here I am again. So, you know, I've survived another year, you know, so uh, basically I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled at continuing to coach at the University of North Carolina. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Anson, along those lines, uh, Mia Hamm once said that she didn't feel like her toughness had been celebrated prior to coming to Chapel Hill. And that when she got to Carolina, uh, you allowed her to really embrace that part of her game. And that kind of made her who she was. Um, I mentioned that because I've, I'm hoping to get an anecdote out of you. Uh, listen to some of your, your vision of a champion podcast, which I highly recommend to everybody watching this now. It was a, a long series kind of diving in uh, to a lot of Anson's thoughts and uh, his work. But you had Stacy Wilson on, um, who was an <laughs> elite, uh, elite defender, uh, Olympic champion, one of the best in the business. She, she's my age. Um, but you, you told a story about, uh, about a broken nose in a game. And I was hoping that you could retell that uh, to kind of provide some insight into your approach on toughness. Yeah, yeah. So, well, first of all, thank you for that. <clears throat> and actually, uh, let me review a couple of things that I think uh, would be along the lines of uh, backdrop that <clears throat> I think everyone will appreciate. Uh, <clears throat> I think there are three things that separate our program. And the thing you're referencing right now is the competitive cauldron. And honestly, this goes back to Dean Smith. Uh, Dean Smith was an incredible mentor for me. And not just uh, in terms of uh, the way I coach, but also the way I treat human beings. Because, oh my gosh, did he treat me above and beyond uh, my worth, in my opinion. <clears throat> he would invite me in to watch his team's practice. And his practice sessions were a marvel of organization and efficiency and what I would notice going to a practice, and by the way, my whole staff would be sitting there with me. One of the managers for Coach Smith would uh, <clears throat> hand me a, uh, a schedule of the practice. And all of a sudden, down to the minute, <clears throat> he has a practice organization. I'm thinking, I have never done this in my life, down to the minute. And sure enough, whenever, you know, the minute rolls by when they're supposed to switch from one exercise to another, you know, the uh, uh, scores table set, hits a button and a noise goes off and, all of a sudden, everyone gets on to the next exercise. 
And I was just stunned. I'm looking down. Sure enough, they're following this to the minute. And I am just so impressed with what's going on. But I also noticed that underneath every basket is a manager with a clipboard. And I'm seeing, uh, you know, every guy time a guy hit or met, misses a shot, it's recorded. If it's uh, the 2v2s under the basket with the bigs, you know, if a guy boxes out for a rebound or fails to, that's recorded. All of a sudden, 3v3, 4v4, 5v5 scrimmages, winners and losers are recorded. <clears throat> I just can't believe the amount of data these guys are recording. And then at the end of practice, you see all the assistant managers with their clipboards sprint to the score table. There, the head manager is recording that day's practice data. Dean is now chatting with the troops. And at the end of his address, by this time, the head manager has compiled that day's practice data. So let's assume, he, assume he's got 12 guys in practice. Now the head manager, I assume, has ranked all 12 players. And then Dean reads off the 12. The first four guys go to shower immediately. The next eight guys line up. And the last four guys are basically going, you know, end line to foul line, end line to mid-stripe, end line to the other foul line, end line to the other end line. And they're just sprinting. Uh, and I assume that last group is sprinting until the end of recorded time. And I, I am loving this. This is accountability, but this is also immediate feedback. <clears throat> and getting back to the course I'm teaching right now, the art and science of expertise, <clears throat> we're teaching this idea from, <clears throat> excuse me, Anders Ericsson about deliberate practice. Deliberate practice is the environment of training where you're learning the most, the fastest. And one of the most critical elements in deliberate practice for an athlete to get to his or her potential is feedback, immediate feedback. And I'm looking at this stuff that Dean is doing and I'm thinking, oh my gosh. So I took all the stuff we're doing in practice, took it to another level. And now if you come down to our practice complex on a bulletin board, everyone's ranked in 28 different categories and stuff that everyone would understand. We've got a vertical jump ranking. We've got a speed ranking. We have an acceleration ranking. We have an agility ranking. We have a fitness ranking, which is a beat test. We have every single half field game they've played all season. And you're ranked based on whether or not the team that you played on that particular day won or lost. There's a shooting ranking. We have shooting exercises too. So are you finishing it or missing? Do you hit the frame or do you shoot wide? Do you shoot high? Because if you shoot high in a particular uh, shooting exercise, you're what's called relegated which means not only are you thrown out of the exercise, you have to go down and train with the defenders. It's like a punishment for a forward worse than death. Because now you've, I mean, the most enjoyable thing in a practice is to score goals. And now you're clearing balls out with your head and clearing balls out with your feet, which is the scut work of your defensive kids. So first of all, you gain an appreciation for the kids that don't get any of the glory that are hanging around in the back, making sure that every goal of yours is a game winning goal. And now uh, you're relegated because you just kicked the ball over the top of the goal, which is not acceptable. So basically, the amount of data we're giving these players is extraordinary. And uh, this is the way we're trying to drive performance. And so uh, we want competitive women. So the uh, story that Mia Hamm was telling you is a very true one. Um, if you're an alpha female, Chapel Hill is your home. Because here's what's interesting about boys and girls. You two guys, Tommy and Greg, when you were growing up, if you were competitive at something, you were patted on the back. In fact, you guys were put on a pedestal if you guys were considered competitive. You know what? Uh, young women that were growing up were not. They were excoriated for being competitive. So all of a sudden, all of their lives, the Mia Hams and the Christine Lillies and the Stacey Wilsons, they were all being excoriated for being competitive creatures. And all of a sudden, they came to North Carolina, and now they're glorified. Why? They go to the bulletin board, and at the top of the list are Mia Hamm, Stacey Wilson, and all these street fighters, that that's who they were. And they're always told, no, 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 you're scaring uh, Mia. No, 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 would you please back off a little, because all the other little girls in practice are just a little bit intimidated by the fact you've beaten them to death, you know, in every minute of the practice. Would you please back off a little, we can't have the whole team quit. So basically we raise our boys and girls differently. But the coolest thing about, uh, you know, being here at the University of North Carolina, if you're an alpha, you've come home. And so the alphas that come in here just can't believe their good fortune because now rather than being excoriated for being competitors, they're glorified. They're at the top of the list. 
And uh, we're doing stuff now that we don't, didn't even do back in the Mia Ham era. We have these things called uh, uh, analytics teams. And we've got uh, boys and uh, well, men and women in, in red jerseys that come to practice. And they turn every single competition into a ranking. And that night, we email them the results of every single practice. So not only is the 1v1 ladder on a matter of public record and bulletin board, now they get that day's practice. And let's assume the beginning of it was 1v1, the middle of it was a 7v7 tournament, then there was a heading exercise, then there was a shooting exercise, then there was an 11v11 scrimmage. Every single aspect of the practice is broken down into a ranking. Then there's an overall ranking based on what the analytics team thinks was the most valuable thing in practice. And so what we're really good at right now is glorifying the competitors. And as a result, it makes these uh, extraordinary women even more competitive because they're supportive in this, in this area. Wilson's thing is, um, I've always felt that pain was manageable. And so uh, I played at UNC. I also, I love contact sports and I've never been very big, um, but my position in rugby was scrum half. And the dilemma for me in rugby and playing scrum half, scrum half is the, the quarterback in rugby. So my job was to deliver the ball out of the back of the scrum and deliver it to the backs who then basically tried to run forward and score, you know, the way the rugby team score. My, my dilemma was I loved hitting people so much. I ended up on the bottom of these rucks, which isn't good, which meant if I was the initial tackler, and I'm on the bottom of a rock. Someone else has to deliver the ball out of the back of the rock. So the team has lost its quarterback. And my coach kept telling me, Anson, what are you doing? I said, I wasn't going to let that SOB, you know, go through us. I was going to take his head off. So don't worry about me. He says, yeah, but now you're on the bottom of a rock. And you're the one that needs to deliver the ball out of the back of the rock. So you're basically not helping me. So in all the sports uh, that I played, I love contact. Uh, and so I know that pain is manageable. In fact, Melissa witnessed one of the worst injuries I've ever experienced in my life. And she took that. This is I was playing for the New York Irish, a rugby team in New York, and we were playing on Randall's Island. And anyone that knows Randall's Island has played sports out there. They have their manhole covers. And by the way, the whole field are you know manhole covers all over the place. I mean, after all, this is New York, right? So it's grass. But then their manhole covers on top of the manhole covers are these thick rubber tarps to protect you if you're tackled onto basically a manhole cover. Well, one of the rucks or scrums had pushed the rubber tarp off the manhole cover. And as I was delivering the ball out of the scrum, a wing forward, who's one of the flank players in the scrum, left the scrum early and tackled me onto the manhole cover. And all of the muscles on my right pictorial were torn off the bone. So I've got this valley on the right side of my chest where my muscles used to be until, you know, they were torn off. And so now we're in the emergency room in New York. And of course, the last place you want to be if you're suffering is in an emergency room in New York, because the people that are ahead of you are not people that don't have any visible blood. Um, the people that are, are ahead of you are, you know, the knife wounds and the gunshot wounds, and the car wrecks. And I'm there for like six hours and they won't give me anything because, as you know, in an emergency room for you to be diagnosed, you've got to be in pain because pain helps the doctor diagnose, you know, what's going on. So I'm sitting there with all my muscles torn off my sternum. I'm in agony. But, you know, this gunshot wound guy is next. And basically I'm there for freaking ever. <laughs> and then I get home and now my dad is angry with me because by this time I was on scholarship at UNC and he's furious that now I'm a scholarship athlete at UNC. And now, of course, I might be out for a while. I said, Dad, don't worry about it. I'll strap my arm to my chest. I had no issue uh, with the pain. You know, I was going to, I was telling him, I was joking with my dad, I was going to be able to handle it. But basically, I've always had a really comfortable relationship with pain. And so uh, when anyone starts rolling around in practice, uh, I know that it's manageable. In fact, one of my favorite moments when I was coaching the men, and I can't remember if this was, uh, I don't, I'm not going to mention the name of the player. I'm thinking of it right now in case it wasn't this player. But anyway, this player was hit on two sides at once. And he's rolling around uh, on the grass in practice, screaming and yelling and screaming and yelling and writhing. And, and I'm standing above me. He's continuing to scream and yell and everything. And I said, you know, well, uh, uh, Billy, uh, I know that hurts. 
But if you were to die now, is this the way you would like us to remember you? The whole team started laughing, and the whole team was laughing so much, even Billy started laughing over this. And so uh, basically, Stacy Wilson in a very important game, and I needed her, broke her nose in the back of someone else's head because she's not very tall, but she's very brave. So she jumped up to head a ball, and this other girl was taller, and they collided, and she smashed her nose in the back of this girl's head while the girl was throwing her head back. And her nose was just smashed. And of course, for those of you that have had bloody noses, I mean, there's a lot of blood. But I've had my nose smashed. There's a lot of blood, but there's not a lot of pain. Because uh, the nose is a wonderful thing to injure because it's just not that painful. And how do I know this? I was a boxer when I was a boy. And I had no issue getting smashed in the face. And so, yeah, my nose has been broken. But, you know, no big deal. It hurts a little. Yeah, there's a lot of blood. But it's sort of spectacular injury. I love... Uh, broken noses. And I love it when this place above my eyebrow gets cut because holy cow, the blood coming out of your head, it looks like you've been shot by a sniper rifle. So, and there's no pain by the way, but gosh, it looks gory. It looks like you're in agony, but you're not. So anyway, so Stacy comes out of the game. Of course, she's bleeding profusely and, you know, you can't have a, a girl bleeding to death on the field. So, you know, I, I had the trainer, you know, stuff a couple things up her nostrils. And then I said, yeah, Stacy, you ready to go back in? She was shocked. She said, what? I said, yeah, I'm putting you back in. There's no freaking way we're going to lose this game over a broken nose. And she shrugged her shoulders because she was tough as nails. Then she went back in and uh, we won the game. So, yeah, I mean, uh, and obviously I have a trainer that gets to make these decisions for me because uh, there are liability issues when the coach, you know, makes uh, a medical decision and there's, you know, some sort of issue. So I have trainers that are always telling me, no, 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 we got to keep her off the field or whatever. And that's fine. You know, I, I genuflect to the litigious hierarchy of, you know, this kind of decision-making. We're listening to head coach UNC women's soccer, Anson Dorrance. Uh, coach Dorrance, we got to have you back on. I know we're going to have to lose you here in a minute, but we got to have you back on in a couple of weeks to have part two of this. This is a great conversation. Let well, me, let me ask finish you. up with uh, Greg's question because I, I don't want to leave him hanging because uh, there are three elements. The first one is the cauldron, and that's where we embrace the alpha females. Everything's recorded. The second piece, this is critical. This balances out the cauldron. I do believe in principle-centered living. So we have a collection of core values that we expect our girls to memorize. If you guys type into your web browser right now, UNC Women's Soccer Core Values, you'll see them. Our girls have memorized the quotations for all 13 of those core values because we want them to live them. And then the final uh, thing that makes a difference in our program is basically taking everyone's personal narrative to the truth. And so those are the three uh, most critical uh, pillars uh, of our long-term success. But uh, let me be completely honest. Our success is built on these extraordinary women. If we didn't recruit effectively, we would not be in this position. So these young women uh, that uh, we basically uh, bring into the University of North Carolina have separated us. And so uh, it's all of these amazing women that have put us in this position. And then the amazing staff I had, you know, back in the day, uh, you know, obviously Bill Palladino uh, and uh, the, the coaches back then that helped me. And now uh, Damon Nahas. Uh, and back then when Bill Palladino was uh, recruiting and coaching with me, I had another great recruiter named uh, Chris Dukar, who was absolutely fantastic. And those are the ones that built the original program. And now the, uh, the people that are doing the lion's share of the work are Damon Nahas, who's an absolutely brilliant coach. He runs most of my sessions and uh, we promoted Chris to a general manager so he can sell out my stadium. And now we've brought in the professional goalkeeper coach of the courage, Nathan Thackeray. So there are no delusions or illusions. Uh, there are no, there's no, you know, magic mirrors on uh, why uh, we're successful. It's great players. And the three pillars for those great players is obviously a great coaching staff. And I've mentioned uh, other names. Uh, and then uh, obviously these three things, the cauldron, the core values, and then getting everyone's personal narrative to the truth. Coach Torrance, we appreciate it. Like I said, I'm going to bug Jody until you come back on and join it because I've got, I've got several more questions. And just as a preview for next time we have you on, if we can do that at some point in the near future, I want to ask you about the evolution of the game, the game itself, but also the evolution of the people you deal with. Frank Martin, head coach at South Carolina, basketball coach, a little crazy, 
um, but he said something that has always stuck with me um, not too terribly long ago. He said, the kids haven't changed. The parents and everybody around them have changed. And it's up to his, up to him to coach those kids. I want to get your take on that next time we talk and how from the 70s, 80s, 90s, here in the 2020s, um, your evolution as a coach, but also evolution in the players you've had at North Carolina. But many thanks for joining us today. This has been great. Such an educational thing. Not too many times you get to talk to um, somebody that's done it and done it at the highest level. Well, Tommy, thank you. And Val, let me uh, let you know that start with that question because you are absolutely right. Um, and uh, that's getting everyone's personal narrative to the truth. And I could spend an entire hour chatting about that. And it does involve parents. And you're right. This is a really, really important conversation we should have, especially for parents that are listening. Uh, there are a thousand uh, different ways that a parent can ruin uh, their child. And I'll mention uh, 999 of them because I've experienced <laughs> all of them. Uh, because yes, this is a real problem. So I would appreciate coming back on and sharing uh, uh, some of my insights uh, with you and Greg. Absolutely. We will get it done. Of course, Johnny T-Shirt's our sponsor. Shout out to Jody for making this happen. Shout out to Coach Dorrance for joining us here. Coach, we'll let you go. Um, I'll drop you out of the chat and we'll get together again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, gentlemen. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank yep. you, Coach. Take care. Greg, it is a fascinating discussion to hear, um, A, how one um, becomes the person that leads North Carolina's dynasty of a women's soccer team, but to hear him go into so much detail and, you know, there, there's a lot of coach speak that goes on. Um, you know, you and I have seen it over the years, and quite frankly, it's refreshing to not hear that coach speak. I mean, it is a fascinating um, thing to listen to. There's a lot of podcasts out there of his own podcast. You mentioned his book. He tells it like it is. And quite frankly, um, he's earned the right to do so. But also his way has earned those 22 national champions, those World Cup wins, all that kind of stuff that go that has gone on in Anson Dorrance's career. Yeah, for sure, Tommy. And there's, there's the old saying, you know, the, the first one through the wall always gets bloody. Uh, and Anson has, has never had any issues with being the first one through the wall. And that's why I was really fascinated with his, his approach on, on dealing with, with young women back in the you know, 70s and early 80s, because that was a shift. Uh, we are old enough, Tommy, to know that as we grew up, you, boys were the ones that played most of the sports. And it was the girls who, who did different things. Um, and then in hindsight, it was. It was a competitive uh, aspect. You know, girls weren't thought to be you know, the ones to, to play competitive sports. And so we've, we've evolved as, as a culture and a society to get to a point where they, you know, everybody is equally competitive. And uh, Anson saw that very early on. And um, what was amazing to me is just looking at his, his record. <laughs> he was 23-0 and 0 in his third year coaching the women's team. Uh, after they got started and then won a, a national championship. Now that was the year before the NCAA actually uh, allowed a championship to be held. So it was an AIAW championship, but from the get go, uh, his method worked and it worked for a very long time and it continues to work to this day. Uh, and so just a, a bold approach. And uh, you, know, we've talked about Dean, Dean Smith in a little bit different way, but he was on the cutting edge. Uh, Roy Williams, was known as a very hard coach to play for when he started at, at Kansas. Uh, and we saw the success that he's had. And um, it, it, it's those individuals, and Carolina has been very fortunate to have a number of them. Uh, Karen Shelton's another one who really kind of found their, their niche and figured out the best way to make it work and just had a, a ton of success with it. Yeah, and what's fascinating to listen to him, and you mentioned that. I mean, I was at Carolina from 89 to 93. I think they lost once and won four national championships. And, <laughs> and you know, Dean Smith always said it's a woman's soccer school, and he was absolutely right um, when you look at it. But the fascinating thing 
before we get out of here. And if folks are listening to this and want to send Greg and I some questions for Coach Dorrance, by all means, we'll make it happen. Um, and we'll have a, a hopefully a long part two to this because it is fascinating. But he took over as a basically as a player coach when he took over the men's team. And how similar is that to what we see with Aaron Matson taking over the field hockey team? Uh, it is fascinating how it all comes full circle in Chapel Hill. And I really think that's the only place um, that it happens is a place like Chapel Hill. Yeah, no doubt. And uh, that speaks to the excellence in place. Uh, Carolina for so long, you know, everybody knows about Dean Smith. Everybody knows about Roy Williams. Um, but it's not just about basketball, Carolina, and it has never been. And so that the depth of quality elite coaching across the board is phenomenal. And that the fact that, you know, Anson's talking about you were learning so much from Dean Smith uh, that's just fascinating to me. That, that's just a really unique thing that's special to North Carolina. Uh, and I, I just think it's you know, Aaron Madsen. She talked to us about learning from Karen Shelton and understanding what it took. And so that those uh, family ties within the, the North Carolina community and the university uh, is just staggering. And it's, it's why the athletic program has had the success that it's had. Absolutely. That was head coach Anson Dorrance. This is Next Level with Greg Barnes and Tommy Ashley. Johnny T-Shirt's our sponsor. We appreciate appreciate everybody listening. Um, if you haven't watched these Next Levels, go back on the YouTube channel, even on the podcast feed and find them. There's some great interviews. A um, little bit different avenue than normal with Inside Carolina podcasts and Inside Carolina YouTube shows. Um, and Coach Dorrance is just another one of those and, and probably the, the biggest in to Greg's point, the most elite one of those. The man has simply done it all in the game of soccer, particularly the game of women's soccer. Greg Barnes, I appreciate you joining me. Shout out again to Jody for handling it. Shout out to Anson Dorrance for joining us. Hopefully in the near future, we'll have part two with Coach Dorrance, get a little more dish on what makes him the coach he is, but also what makes the game the game it is. Greg, thank you, buddy. Thanks, Tommy. Baseball has begun, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today in 5, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Samphill, every Monday through Saturday as we deliver all of your fantasy baseball needs in just five minutes. We'll break down the biggest performers, news, and prospects who could make an impact this season. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found.